Let me now introduce four of our prize winners and ask them to come forward to receive their award. Dr. Vincent Cerf for the internet. Dr. Robert Kahn also for the internet. Mr. Louis Cousin also for the internet. In 2013, Buckingham Palace started to award the first-ever Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. There were several prize winners, but three people were honored for their work on the creation of the Internet. You heard from the first two recipients in the last episode, Bob Kahn and Vint Cerf. But the third recipient, Louis Pouzan, was a surprise even to himself. Here's his partner, Chantal Lebrumont. Yes, it, it was very specific and curious because uh, Buckingham Palace take a, a phone call to Louis in Paris to say, uh, you are a winner for the first Queen of uh, uh, QE Prize. And Louis uh, think, oh, it's a joke. And uh, he scratched the phone <laughs> two times. And the third time, the secretary of Buckingham said, no, 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 it's real, it's real, it's a real, <laughs> really Buckingham. <laughs> You're really a winner. <laughs> it's a very uh, a surprise. Louis Pouzan may be one of the first people in history to hang up on Buckingham Palace. Buckingham was very surprised because... Uh, Nobody uh, hung up for the queen. <laughs> Louis is 92 years old. He has spent most of his life in France. But right now, he and Chantal are vacationing in Spain. We sent our producer, Sophie, to record him. What language is she is practicing? English. English, yes. I'm here in New York City. Oh, yeah. I hear where you are is much warmer and much more beautiful. Louis has had some health issues in recent months. Like my dad, some of them seem to include memory. So Chantal, who also co-wrote his biography, The Inventions of Louis Pouzan, is helping translate and answer our questions. Louis is known for his work on what's called the datagram. Did you invent the datagram? Well, the term datagram, I created it. You created the datagram? Yes. You can think of a datagram like a postcard. Information is sent off with the destination address in mind and can take a number of different routes to get there. Before the datagram, information traveled more like, say, a train, which can only be sent down a single track. The datagram made sending information more efficient. It's technology that's still used today. The datagram is the basis of internet. The story of the datagram has carved Louis' place in internet history. But did he actually invent the datagram and could the internet exist without it? Other founding fathers like Vint Cerf and Bob Kahn say that's going too far. Here's Kahn. I think it's clear and fair to say 
that the protocol was due to Vint and myself. Uh, as far as I was concerned, I knew of no contribution from Louis Pouzan at the time. But Cerf and Khan certainly used the idea of a datagram to help the ARPANET evolve into the internet with the famous protocols they created. Bob Khan uh, lies a lot, <laughs> and uh, he lies about uh, his work for uh, 10 years because uh, uh, when Louis said, uh, we, on va vous aider. I think he was a, an excellent professional, but somehow he was critical of uh, other people who were doing good things, but he didn't want to to tell why he was jealous. <laughs> so the question is, how much credit does Louis Pouzan deserve for inventing the datagram? Did the American founding fathers copy the ideas of the internet from the French? Or was it just in the air? We have much to explore in this episode. This is Computer Freaks from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Hani Dare Bryan. Chapter 4, The French Connection. First, let me tell you about Louis Poussin. Louis was born in central France in 1931. According to his biography, as a child he was precocious, funny and clever, and pampered by everyone. In his early years, he was homeschooled and spent much of his time tinkering with his family's sawmill machines. But his aunt, a nun, had bigger ambitions for him and ordered that he be sent away to school. He worked his way into the prestigious École Polytechnique and eventually landed an opportunity to do research at MIT. After spending time at MIT, Louis was asked by the French government in 1971 to develop a computer network for his own country. He named this computer research network Cyclad, after the famous Greek archipelago, forming a circle in the Aegean Sea. He compared the proposed network to how boats connected these islands. He was inspired by what was happening on the ARPANET project, but he knew there were challenges ahead. He had gone to the States, looked at ARPANET, and he wanted to do better. So it's not like he came up with it out of his own head. I mean, he was looking at ARPANET and trying to think of the next phase. That's Mark Weber. He's the curatorial director of the Internet History Program at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. He has interviewed many of these founding fathers. What Mark means by the next phase is that because the ARPANET was getting bigger and networking overall was getting bigger, there had to be better ways to communicate. The ARPANET's just about connecting computers together, different kinds of computers. The problem with those kind of networks, and there were a number of them by the early 70s, that's why INWIC started to try to come up with the next level. But having a bunch of computer networks that don't talk to each other isn't that much better than a bunch of computers that don't talk to each other. At the time, everyone was siloed within their own networks. 
So the problem they wanted to solve is how to find a way to talk across them all. So the next step is internetting or internetworking. That's where the term internet comes from, is literally networks of networks. It's like one level higher. So you've got three different incompatible computer networks. Your next problem is how do you send data between them? Because it's not obvious that you can at all until you, you create protocols designed for that. So Louis, his whole thing was he didn't want to count on the network in the middle. He wanted it to be end-to-end, you know, that basically the two hosts, the two machines on either end would not count on the reliability of the network in between them. That's why they do error checking and stuff. So it could work over a number of different networks. It's sort of, you don't worry about what's in the middle. You're just checking that it's getting through, is my naive understanding of it. But I mean, it's all about these higher levels of how do you send data across dissimilar networks. To Louis, the datagram was an answer to that problem. Here's John Day, who was another grad student researcher at the time. They want to build a network for research. So they're starting to say, okay, what are the minimal elements we need? Okay, well, we got to be able to send stuff through the wires. And they want to make it the simplest possible. So Louis brought the Seclade team's ideas about internetworking to the October 1972 coming out ball. What Vizan introduces is we can use unreliable parts to build a viable system that's far simpler. And everybody sort of went, oh, you know, so they were enthused. This was a big aha. And I, I can imagine just how exciting it was. And so Louis shows up at IEEE 72 and says, guys, look at what we've come up with. At which point, I think everybody was kind of excited. Day is a big fan of Louis Poussin. He even wrote the foreword to his biography. Day met up with some of the people in Seclade a few times over the years. They were some of the coolest guys. We They were fun to be with. And we started working with them almost immediately because we, you know, they were smart guys. We like smart guys. And during the ball, Day, Puzan, and many of the people we talked to for this series started collaborating through what was called the International Network Working Group, or INWIC for short. It was basically a global club for inventors in the computer science field. They would talk about the future, problem solve, and catch each other up on what they were working on. Vince Cerf was an active member of NWIG, too. In fact, he was the first chairman. So I get stuck with the job of running the International Network Working Group. Cerf, to go along with his many suits, now wore many hats. While he was collaborating with NWIG and discussing how to internet work, he was also working with Bob Kahn on the same issue. Bob shows up in my office in the spring of 73, and describes uh, this idea. Surf was working at Stanford by this point. We've shown that packet switching works well. Now the Defense Department, ARPA in particular, is saying, can we use computers in command and control? Remember that ARPA was originally formed in the late 50s to keep up with the technological advances of the Russians. And, in part, to solve the communication issues identified after World War II. Up to this point, the ARPANET was designed for research sharing. It just wasn't capable of handling the issues of command and control. It's why internetworking was essential. 
The ARPANET was designed and built around dedicated telephone circuits connecting the packet switches to each other. You can't do that with, you know, mobile vehicles in the field. The tanks run over the wires and they break and the ships get all tangled up and the airplanes can't get off the tarmac. <laughs> so we had to use radio, either ground mobile radio or satellite, in order to achieve the objective of using computers for command and control. And oh, by the way, if you're going to do that, they're going to have to support voice, video, and data because those are essential to a command and control regime. So the internet project was motivated by figuring out whether we could design and build a system that used computers to assist in command and control. And of course, the motivation for that was that if you could manage your resources better in a conflict, a smaller force could overcome a bigger one because of the improved management capability. That meant you got a force multiplier out of the computers. So that's the, that was our primary motivation for doing the internet project. So after Khan meets Cerf in his office in spring of 73, the two get to work on the internetworking project, a project that will let multiple networks, not just the ARPANET, connect. A problem Enwig was interested in solving, too, of course. By September of 73... Bob Kahn and I are going to meet with the International Network Working Group. And we present the TCP IP concept to that working group in September of 1973. TCP IP is the acronym for what are the basic rules, layers, and structure for internetworking. TCP stands for Transmission Control Protocol, and IP stands for Internet Protocol. These letters may be vaguely familiar to you if you've ever configured a new computer yourself. And so that was a big deal because uh, the, the International Network Working Group had been discussing the concepts that eventually turned into TCP. And then we go back and we start working on a refined version of that in October, uh, if I'm remembering right. And at that point, we're out in Palo Alto at a hotel in Palo Alto, and we basically write the first more or less complete description of what the internet's going to look like. I think it was the plantation room, a conference room on the first floor of the Cabana Hyatt. That's Bob Kahn. Which was a Hyatt that was right opposite another Hyatt on El Camino Real in Palo Alto. I actually have the form I had to sign out and pay for the room. It cost me $16 in 1973 when we rented it. <laughs> One of the most important documents in the history of the Internet was drafted in a hotel chain conference room. But at that point, Khan and Cerf didn't know that their vision would have any application beyond command and control. After that day at the Hyatt, they continued to edit their concept. We made minor conforming changes and maybe added a few references to things we learned about later that we thought were appropriate and submitted it to IEEE. TCP-IP, which they discussed with the International Working Group a short time before, had been refined and was ready to be presented to the larger computer community. It was published in the Transactions on Communications in May of 1974. Uh, then I flipped a coin to see whose name would come first. He won the flip, so it's a Vincent and Bob Kahn paper. Could have gone the other way. Didn't matter to me that much. So... Once that gets published, then we can start implementing it. And so we actually begin the implementation of the TCP protocol in January of 75. 
Before we go any further, you might be wondering what exactly is TCPIP. At the time, Khan and Cerf were thinking about how radio networks, satellite networks, and the ARPANET all needed to communicate with each other. But each functioned differently, and there is no doubt going to be more networks in the future. In its simplest terms, TCPIP is the software that allows any computer to talk to any other computer, no matter what network it is a part of. It does this with layers of protocol, where each layer has a special function or job. Each layer plays a role in getting data to its destination. It's almost like the Rosetta Stone of computer communications. We have the capability now with the standard protocols, TCP IP protocols, to build a system that can integrate together an arbitrarily large number of packet switch networks using different technologies. And we designed it to be future-proof in the sense that the internet layer of protocol is capable of sweeping any communication system into under it to support packet transport. So it's sort of like a postcard doesn't know whether it was carried on a bicycle or a car or a plane or a ship, and it doesn't care. Every layer in the internet architecture can be extended with new protocols. And so if you weren't happy with what it was doing right now, you were free to invent another protocol at any layer and extend that layer. So TCP IP was not just meant to solve the command and control problem now, but to also solve the unknown problems of the future. With that in mind, Cerf and Khan set out to implement these protocols in 1975. But it wasn't until 1977 that the full capabilities of TCP IP would be tested. There was organized a three network demonstration of the packet satellite, packet radio, and ARPANET to show how you know, packets could flow through three different nets. So there are a bunch of people who are scheduled to take part in all of this, the guys at University College London, uh, the folks out at the Packet Radio Network in, um, at SRI International. So I'm here in this time zone. By this time zone, he means Eastern Standard Time. We're in his home just outside of D.C. They're in, out in the West Coast three hours earlier, and they're driving up and down the Bayshore Freeway radiating packets. We went from the U.S. out to Europe and then back again, and then echoing back in the other direction. This is four years of work since Khan walked into Cerf's office with this idea of internetworking. Now they finally get to see if it works. Yeah, so I'm, uh, you know, listening to uh, this chatter on a conference call to make sure that, you know, that this is really going to work. And, uh, and sure enough, it does. Uh, uh, so, you know, I'm just jumping up and down as a result of, of con concretely demonstrating that the multiple implementations of the TCP protocol across three different kinds of packet switch nets actually works. And so, you know, that was a really great moment for, for all of us. This test happened 20 years after the launch of Sputnik drove the U.S. government to create ARPA. There has been 20 years of work taking computers from giant adding machines to be part of an intergalactic network 
And Vince Cerf and Bob Kahn are arguably the most responsible for that. But where does Louis Poussin fit into all of this? This is a painful topic because Louis has inexplicably decided that he needs more credit than I think he legitimately deserves. This is a story driven by he said, he said arguments that have only grown more complicated with time. But stick with us and we will do our best to unwind this controversy after a quick break. Computer Freaks is brought to you by Inc. Business Media. Inc. is here to support the American entrepreneur through its journalism, recognition programs like the Inc. 5000, live events like Inc. Founders House, and small peer-to-peer networking. We aim to inform, educate, and elevate the profile of our community, the risk-takers, the innovators, and the ultra-driven go-getters who create our future. For more essential journalism like Computer Freaks, go to Inc.com and subscribe to Inc. Unlimited to experience the full offering of writing, video, and podcasts. Everyone seemed to be on the same page, that they wanted computers to be able to talk to any other computer, regardless of what network they were on. But the problem our computer freaks were still running into was sending data reliably from one computer to another, and we're all searching for solutions. So as we know, Louis Poussin's contributions center around datagrams. He ran a team in France implementing a pure datagram model on their Cyclade network. Vince Cerf was certainly aware of Louis's work. He doesn't dispute that. Bob and I visited his laboratory where he was doing the Cyclade project. There were two things. We had the Sigal network, which is basically like the BBNN ARPANET, and then the host computers he called Cyclade. The packet switch system was called Sigal, which is grasshopper mm. in French. Bob and I visited that lab. We talked to Louis. He was a big proponent of datagram communication which in a very funny way was what the ARPANET looked like at the interface. You sent it a message. It was like sending it a postcard. And it got all broken up inside into these little packets and it got reassembled at the other side and the ARPANET worked really, really hard to make sure everything got there in the right order. And it wouldn't take any packets unless it was sure that there was some room for them at the other end. And so there was a lot of flow control mechanisms and things called request for next message, which told the host it's okay to send another message. He's describing the packet switching structure that we heard about in episode two with Len Kleinrock. So Louis was a big fan of purely packet switched interfaces, and he didn't, uh, I think he, he didn't want to have the interior of the net be relied upon to uh, deliver everything. He was an end-to-end guy, and so were we. Bob and I ingested that end-to-end notion of recovery Uh, on an end-to-end basis, host-to-host, because the networks we were dealing with were lossy. The satellite net had collisions. The ethernet had collisions. The packet radio net had collisions, or it had packet loss because you were in uh, radio shadow and you missed something. And so the only way we could recover was to have the host computers retransmit end-to-end. 
The NCP protocol didn't do that because it assumed that the ARPANET was reliable, kept everything in order, and didn't lose anything. We assumed otherwise. Same argument for, uh, for Louis. Now, one of Louis's guys, Gerard Lelon, comes to my laboratory at Stanford University in 1973 and is working with me and Bob on the detailed spec of TCP. And so the flow control scheme using the sliding window and the mechanism for figuring out, is this an old packet or is this a new packet, was based on the sliding window that was used in the Cyclad project. To simplify what Bint is talking about, the sliding windows mechanism was yet another advance in the ability to send data efficiently and reliably. It helps control the rate at which data is sent. It also uses sequencing numbers to eliminate duplicate data and to request missing data. It's key to TCP IP. Vint and Bob adopted this technique in TCP IP that they learned from the Cyclade project. We freely acknowledged that in our paper in May of 1974. But for all practical purposes, that's as much reasonable credit as Louis deserves to the extent that he invented the sliding window, if he did. And it's not even clear whether he invented that or whether that was somebody else. It might even have been Gerard Lelon or one of his colleagues. So Louis is um, inexplicably insisting that the ARPANET or the internet is broken and that he invented it anyway and a bunch of other things. And it's disappointing. By the way, Gerard Lelon and some of his colleagues had published responses to some of these assertions that basically say that his claims are, are not valid. Yes, we've been speaking extensively to Gerard. I had reached out to Gerard Lalonde because I found his interview in the Charles Babbage archives and thought that separately he had a great story to tell. He was only one of a few non-U.S. citizens working on the ARPANET project with Vint Cerf. He described being treated like a spy and searched by officials when he arrived at Boston's Logan International Airport in the 1970s to find out more about the ARPANET. At the time I initially reached out to him, I had no idea how deep tensions ran between him and Puzat. You want me to tell you the truth? Yes, please. I used to be almost an admirer of Louis Puzat in the early days of Cyclade. But that's over now. I cannot, I cannot be positive. Uh, about someone who is a liar. Lalanne, who is 79 years old, was born in Paris, but has spent much of his life in Western France and Brittany. In 1972, he joined Louis Poussin's group at Cyclade. He told a Babbage archivist in 2012 that he was drawn to the Cyclade project because he could work close to home in Brittany and had the prospect of traveling to the U.S. I've been very lucky to be involved into both projects. The Cyclad project and the ARPANET project have seen this side of the project, so I can tell a lot of things that you know, people don't read in the news. So let's start with a question of sliding windows. Lalonde claims that he was responsible for that mechanism. My contribution to the ARPANET was the sliding window scheme. And that contribution, I made it only to Bob Kahn, when they visited area 
in March 1973. By that time, six months after I joined the Cyclad project, I had completed almost totally the simulation studies. And I knew why SCP had problems and the um, first version of the Cyclad protocol as well. And since I, I had uncovered the causes of malfunction, of course, I had very clear ideas about a solution. And the solution had to do with error control, to put it very simply, to have agreement between a source and a destination. One has been sent and one has been received at the other end. Lalan then clarified, in his view, what Louis' role was in sliding windows. He had no interest in those issues. The issues he was interested in was packets, which were called datagrams later on. Now to the question of the datagram. Did Louis invent the datagram? A datagram, as the law just said, is another name for a packet. You will remember that this was the major point of contention in episode two. The term packet was coined by Donald Davies, and most attribute its invention to Davies and Paul Barron. Louis certainly made contributions to the advancement of this concept, and Louis also has his defenders, even on this side of the Atlantic. Those supporters include Alex McKenzie, who started working on the ARPANET project for Bolt, Baranek, and Newman in 1970. He had been at the heart of the development of the ARPANET, and he was part of NWIG with many of these founders. Given what Alex saw on the inside, he believes very strongly that Louis should have gotten more credit. Louis Pouzon and his group were pushing very hard for the idea of datagrams and for most of the ideas that ended up in the TCP IP protocol. And um, Bob has never subsequently admitted that he had ever heard of any of these ideas and that he invented them completely on their own. And that seems dishonest to me. Mackenzie said that knowing Bob Kahn, he thinks it's unlikely that he would have never come across Puzan's work. Bob and Vin are credited with the invention of the Internet Protocol, and that's relatively a fair statement. But um, their work was built on the work of uh, several others, including especially Louis Puzan, Bob Metcalf. Donald Davies' group, and Vint, in his documentation of uh, what he did, has always referenced the work of others and given them credit. And Bob, on the other hand, probably is not much in writing, but he has always maintained that he and Vint invented uh, what they invented entirely on their own, and that he never read any of the other documents, and he never listened to any of the other people. I worked with Bob in writing the specification for interconnecting an imp and a a host. Actually, he wrote the first version. I worked with him on a revision, and he was a very meticulous editor for anything that interested him. He wanted to get the facts exactly right. He wanted to get the words exactly right. He wanted to know uh, for sure that everything was correct. And it's hard for me to believe that two years later, on a topic that 
he was working on, namely how to build a protocol for internetworking, that documents crossed his desk and he never looked at them, that he worked with a co-worker, Vint, who was chair of this group that was working on the same problem they were working on, and that he never discussed with Vint what this other group was doing, and that when Vint did say that the group had thought this or that, that he just dismissed it and assumed it was irrelevant. It just doesn't sound like the Bobcon that I worked with. John also believes that, well, I won't put words in his mouth. I understand him to believe that Bob is taking an unreasonable amount of credit for inventing things, but you can talk to John about that if you want. We have heard from John Day earlier in this episode. Day wrote the introduction to Pizan's biography. He understands really well the difference between what the ARPANET folks were doing and what was happening at Cyclad. He said the French focused on doing research, while the Americans were looking at applied uses for military purposes. Poussin's strategy was to build a network to do research on networks. And how is that different from what was happening in the U.S.? Oh, the U.S. was building a network that would not lose data and could be used for doing land use management, for simulating atom bombs, for doing research on missiles, to research on whatever ARPA was doing. But the network was just there to enable that. Okay, so why, I'm being devil's advocate, why does that matter? Why is what Pazan's people doing on Saclad? Because that's how they found the aha that simplified everything. And what is the aha? Datagrams and transport. And so... That wasn't in the ARPANET. Right. We threw the ARPANET technology away. What do you, I'm sorry, what do you mean we threw the ARPANET technology away? Well, we, do, we don't use it today. But we don't use the clouds. Yes, we do. Through datagrams. We use datagrams in end-to-end transport today. That's what TCP IP is. So this is what the assertion comes down to. How important was the datagram to what Vint and Bob did? They say they acknowledged it, but the datagram was not essential. This is what Chantal and Louis say. TCPIP is an uh, internet uh, uh, based on datagram, but uh, developed by Vinsurf uh, uh, and Bob Kahn with uh, seven layers in theory. <laughs> seven layers, and they name TCP IP. But uh, it's just a label, it's not a program. So he lies because it takes uh, 10 years because the datagram explained to uh, Bob Kahn in AT73, 74, and uh, they launched the first part of uh, TCP IP in 1982. They, they make 10 years, understand exactly what the, is the datagram and what is the philosophy behind datagram. So they, they said, uh, oh, no security. Because they, they, they can't make the same uh, like uh, uh, Cyclad. Is this really about Americans like Surf and Khan just taking more credit for work that 
Ciclad was trying to do, but they just didn't have the resources to go the extra mile. Yeah, sure. American have a, had resources, a lot of money, army, army uh, development, uh, a lot of influence, uh, and uh, American people are more uh, realistic. <laughs> Practical, practical. <laughs> if you were confused at this point, I don't blame you. There are no straight lines in this story. But in terms of recorded history, TCPIP is credited to Surf and Khan. And Khan defends his place in history. As far as I was concerned, I knew of no contribution from Louis Pouzan at the time. Vint, on the other hand, had been involved in an international group that was trying to develop an alternative protocol. He might have had conversations. If he did, I didn't know about them at the time. When we published the paper, Vint had said, well, you know, this is very much like what they did over there. And I said, then we should reference it. So there's a reference in the paper we wrote. It wasn't in the first draft that we presented in Sussex, but it was in the final paper that basically referenced all of the things we then later thought were appropriate to reference. But... Um, I think the protocols itself, uh, there's no credibility for anybody else to take credit for it than, than myself. We brought different things to the table, but, uh, you know, a lot of people have uh, wanted to claim credit for contributions to the Internet, and that's fair. Many people have made contributions to the Internet over, over time, but the, the thing that made it happen and was real in the first place with those protocols, because without them, you wouldn't have been able to interconnect the networks. You wouldn't have an internet without having multiple networks. What is clear is that Louis was doing some work on this and deserves some credit. The original question we asked was, did he invent the datagram? And could the internet have been invented without it? We know he alone did not invent the datagram. Would the internet have happened without Louis' ideas? Probably. You could say that about any of the founding fathers of the internet. But going back to that first Queen's Prize for Engineering, Louis did get some credit because he wound up on the same stage as Cerf and Khan. After talking to Bob and Vint, Louis and Chantal, John, Alex, and dozens of other founders who aren't in this episode, I'm left with no clear definitive answers. What I am left thinking about is who gets to write history. It's almost always the winners. If you read histories of the American Revolution from an American perspective, you'll get a completely different narrative than if you read it from a British perspective or a French perspective. The story of our internet founding fathers is no different. So next episode, we will spend more time with the winners, whose history has been remembered best, and what happened when they too were then eclipsed by other networks. Because this battle that began with Surf and Khan's internet protocols is just getting started. Computer Freaks is a production of Inc. Created and hosted by myself, Christine Hani Darebryan. Our executive producer and editor is Josh Christensen. Associate producer is Sophie Codner. Music by James Jackman. Sound design and mixing by Nicholas Torres. Editorial oversight by Scott Emelianuk and Stephanie Meta. Computer Freaks is dedicated to my dad, Major Joseph Hani.